Blog Talk Radio. Everybody is resting. Um, I know we've had uh, an interesting weekend so far after an interesting week. Um, but if you are listening to us, if you downloaded this, if you're not listening to live, or if you're listening live, um, you've tuned into At the Edge, Think Culture, and Afrofuturism um, Scholar Salon. Um, award-winning show bringing knowledge to the digital community. At the Edge discusses ideas, crossing cultural boundaries to expand ideas about art, writing, knowledge, publishing, and production, while contending with challenges about access, virtual space, political context, challenges, and incursion of cyber cultures. You can find out more about my research at AfrofuturismScholar.com. You can also check me out. I do have um, a webpage, Sherry Ann Turpin, um, that is on Facebook. You can also follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, Dr. Turpin. That's D R T U R P I N. Today we have a very special guest, AJ Lynch. Um, I titled this Black Feminism Dash Intersectionality in 2020, and it has been a very interesting year indeed. Um, Ajune Lynch, and I do apologize for the mispronunciation, is a black feminist committed to improving the lives of black queer people and femmes. She's a graduating senior at UDC. Um, AJ currently serves as a housing advisory specialist for a local nonprofit, also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. AJ, do you have um, a website or um, do you have um, a product you'd like to um, also promote? Because I do encourage that. Uh, 
So, first of all, hey, I'm so happy to be here. I am working on a website. This is some things that I want to do, but I'm starting a blog on Instagram. So my name is at Aiden, so A-Y-E-J-A-Y-E-L-L-L-E, so A-J-L with three L's and then E. Um, so people can follow me there just to, you know, stay updated on some of the great things I'm going to be doing in the coming year. So that's the best way to find me on the, the interwebs. Right, right. You know, I'm really going to miss you. Um, I'm starting a course this spring um, as part of my Writing for the Whip um, course series on um, black people, um, the black whip, black Twitter, um, you know, the black president, uh, the black presence or diversity um, in in the digital um, realm. And I think that you are... um, you're a fine example of what can happen when we work with the up-and-coming generations for supporting um, our community and encouraging um, the presence of black folk in the digital realm. Um, how are you this afternoon? I just want to start by saying I'm going to miss you too so much. Your classes have been super transformative in my experience in navigating academia, even at HBCU, even in somewhere as as black as, as D.C. So I'm definitely going to miss you, too. Um, I'm okay. I'm doing yeah. pretty good. I'm actually in a really good state of learning and, and really wanting to, like, tap into what my passions are, what, you know, what I can do as um as I'm becoming more of a transformative leader and what that's kind of look like, um, who, the, the, the ways in which I center things, how am I decentering things that, that don't necessarily need to be an aspect of, of my growth. And so I'm great. And, I, again, I am so happy to be here just to, um, you know, discuss some of my experiences, some of your experiences. Yeah. I've, been I'm, trying to get you, I've been trying to get you right. I've been trying to get you on my show forever on end. You have... <laughs> Yeah, because you've you've been a leader um, in the tag, um, you know, in in, in the tag collective. Um, You've also, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You're also um, serving um, at the for the student government and or the the um, the board of trustees. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, it's 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 always amazing when I see you all moving up and using what you learned from my classes. So please share with the audience what you've been able to do at UDC and for the black community. So I started as, and, and as I'm learning to decenter white supremacy and everything, I start off my story from where I began to student leadership to now, you know, uh, graduating. So I am a GED student, right? I'm a I came to school at a traditional time. I went to the community college because it was affordable. Um, and there I just saw some of the experiences of, we had, of course, they were college students, but a lot of those college students were um, low income. They had adverse socioeconomic statuses. Again, me coming in just because I wanted an affordable college situation. Um, we wanted to, or necessarily, I wanted to look at some of the ways that we could make life outside of school easier. Like if you are hungry, you know, it's kind of hard to focus on your classes. If you don't have a metro card to get to class, you know, you're not showing up and that's affecting your grade. 
So um, I joined student government in my first year at the community college. I graduated, got an associate's degree, and then as I moved to Urbanet, I saw some of the structural issues within the university just as a whole, campus to campus, but, but my experience at Van Ness was a little unique. Um, I did get to serve um, with the, the Alliance Group, which is our LGBTQ student organization for a while. Um, I joined um, student government, so I was able to do a lot of, you know, partnerships and, and working to kind of transform what UDC looks like. Um, so yes. that, that was correct. I, I was on student government. I was on the World of Court. I was the first openly identified queer person to serve on the royal court um, as a, a, a more respectable traditional um, thing that we do at HBCUs where we have kings and queens. I, I kind of broke that mold a little bit. Um, I have traveled. I have UDC has given so much to me and, and in the same breath wanting to give back. I wanted to make sure that what I was giving back was in the nature of what UDC and our students deserve, and that was yes. looking at student student organizing always from a, a queer black feminist lens, looking at who's at the margins, who's at the bottom, what students need to be served the most, and then what we can do about it. Wow. So be honest, um, or as honest as you are comfortable in that sense, um, my you know, I always like to say my podcast space is a is a is a safe space. That being said, um, you're sharing this, and so um, and we live in a very political city. Um, you know me to to not hold my tongue. Um, a lot of people know me to not hold my tongue, but the reality of it is is that actually I do. It's knowing when to speak, knowing when to listen, knowing when to. Um, they would need to be said. And so mm -hmm. what are you comfortable saying about UDC insofar as the way that queer people are treated, the way that black women are treated? Two different but at points intersecting areas. Of course. My experience and I have to understand that even in my experience in getting to do many things and representing the school, I understand that there's a lot more that could have been done and that that shouldn't have happened at the hands of systems being systems and, and oppressive systems being oppressive systems. Um, so I remember um, in TAG when I first started, um, there's some amazing organizers in that group, some of them which still go to the school. They were fighting to the nail for gender neutral bathrooms. And there there were opportunities where at every time that they got they were speaking about it and, and organizing on it. So that in itself told me what I needed to know about how committed UDC was to right. queer students just from the, the reception and how hard they had to fight to to do something that's so simple, to change a sign. Um and so that not only angered me, it it made me realize that, you know, institutions can say a lot of things and they can say how transformative they are and they can do all these things, but it has to happen. And it when right. people are, are organizing, there are people committed to their work, you have to be able to let them do it. Um, and I, I found that that was pretty difficult at UDC. 
Um, and then as far as being a black woman, black women faculty deserve more at this institution. And that's, that's just point blank period. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've seen it in respect to professors at every level. When I was at the community college, when I was at the main campus, going this place, that place, there has to be a better commitment to walking the walk. So if we are committed to intersectionality and we're committed to a number of these things and these buzzwords that we like to use, we have to ensure that our faculty reflects that and that our staff reflects that and that black women are being compensated fairly um, at the rate at which white men would be paid. And I, I want to see that happen, that needs to happen. Um, so until that happens, I can say, you know, I had one particular experience, but there's so much more work that needs to be done. No, not needs to, that's going to be done. Um, if, this, if that institution, um, my institution wants to continue to thrive, that that is just my experience. That's what needs to happen. Um, you know, and I want to see it happen, and I want to be a part of seeing that happening. Wow. That's a lot. And there's so much um, that I want to say that I want to respond to that I want to, um, you know, that I want to kind of jump into. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do this um, in a way that that's it's workable. And keep in mind, um, and for those of you who are listening, um, you know, um, I, what I've done today for for today's um, chat, um, we're 15 minutes into a two-hour, um, and so I put this to the max. Um, it doesn't mean that necessarily that we'll be on for an hour, but it definitely means that we're starting off with some, some pretty heavy issues that do need to be discussed. Um, so speaking from the vantage point of an alum who refuses to give a dime to UDC because of the issues that you've pointed out, um, <laughs> And I know that there are administrators who are going to download this and they're going to be like, well, what issues? I don't understand. Well, it's kind of hard. In, in my opinion, I think that sometimes what happens is that if you get a nice pay, paycheck and everybody in your circle likes you because you're in a position of authority, um, you have a nice title. Um, you, and a nice it's, suit. It's really... Right, right, right. You know, you got nice clothes, you got a nice car, or whatever. I and I'm speaking of I'm not speaking of 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 men necessarily. I'm actually speaking of men, women, and them. In other words, acknowledging the fact that um, the reality that we do have transgender people on our campus, um, and while we've gotten better at the pronouns, we're not so good at dealing with all of the other isms, um, one of them being gender performance. Because even if you identify um, as a woman or identify as a man, if you identify as cisgender, if you don't perform your gender according to what society or what your community says that you're supposed to perform it, you really are not treated well. In other words, um, you, because your gender not conforming, non-conforming, um, if you're, whether you are heterosexual, um, bisexual, gay, or lesbian, and so you have those issues. But what's wrapped up mm-hmm. in that 
particularly in the D.C. area, particularly in the American South, particularly in Washington, D.C., is this hierarchy, black respectability politics. And you can't really discuss black respectability politics without dealing with class, race, gender, gender performance, um, sexual orientation, um, or gender identity, whether you identify as transgendered or cisgendered. In other words, um, there are people within our community, when I say are, I'm referring to the African-American community or the Mm -hmm. dominating African-American community. There are people within the African-American community here in D.C. who make decisions as to who is valuable based on um, your gender performance, your skin color, your social class, what, how much money you have in the bank, what kind of car you drive, what kind of church you belong to. You have all of those elements. And for whatever bizarre reason, some people seem to think that when you come on a college campus, real life does not occur. Real life does not stop on a college campus. Your college degrees don't keep you from being an asshole, in other words. And don't worry. No, they don't. I have set the, ra- I set the, ra- I set the rating so that we can be a little spicy with our language. Um, and so when I – and some of this does involve it. So when it comes to black women, black women faculty, you know what really complicates this, something that I discovered when I first got to this campus? I discovered that black women on this campus, particularly black women who had settled in as associate and full professors, for the most part, seem awfully obsessed with upholding male supremacy. And the longer I've been here, the more that I have discovered that you have black women, in particular older black women, who are very much committed to upholding white male supremacy. Not acknowledging the existence. Yes. It's and it's I there's 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 there, and, and I'm not gonna even I'm not gonna mention depart, departments, I'll just say this. I had a black woman professor um I had to file two grievances this past fall. I've never done that in my life. Um I had to file two grievances against two different white male professors, their buddies. Um, and I can't help but wonder if they decided that they were just going to go ahead and lean in because um, they thought that Trump was coming back in. And I guess they thought this whole goddamn town was just going to become Trump heaven. And so I'm very vocal as a black feminist, as an intersectionality black feminist. I'm very vocal mm-hmm. and out as a bisexual woman. Um, as somebody who is um, sex positive, as somebody who is mm-hmm. polyamorous, as somebody who is different able. For some people, they mm-hmm. see that as a target. So here's the thing. The guy who actually got, who, um, who recently, and I'm not mentioning any names, but you know who you are if you're listening, and those two black women professors who helped him, um, they know what they did. And one of them is, one of them 
um, is a, um, one of them. Well, they're both full professors. One of them actually said to me over the phone, oh, yeah, I saw, I, I, I saw the email that he sent you. This guy was running, he's running, he calls himself running for the, uh, running for the union, <laughs> union presidency, and he sends me his, his platform, and the first thing that's on there is him referring to black faculty and administrators as racist monkeys. So I'm thinking to myself as I'm looking at this shit, my God, if he feels comfortable sending me this shit, how is he treating the students? Woo. And, and I, I think that right, that is, right. In so some ways, in some ways, right. I, I don't understand. I wanted to, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, it's cool. It, it, and the thing about it is, I will say this. UDC has improved. Um, I've been here for 17 years, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until President Mason got here that people started taking that Title IX office seriously. Um, and um, Evola Bates, I know that people don't like Evola Bates because she's real serious looking, but she's actually a nice lady. And um, <laughs> look, and I'm not a, I'm not a favorite. I don't like, you know, I don't kiss administrative ass. I don't give a fuck. If I feel you're an asshole, I'm going to tell you you're an asshole. Um, I don't have any problems saying, okay, administrators need to pick up their game, and they do, actually. There are a lot of administrators on this campus who need help, but there are a lot of faculty who need help. We need Mm -hmm. training. And I'll say this. Mm -hmm. The lady who runs HR, she gets it. That lady gets it. But the lady who came before her, Nah, she didn't get it at all. And she was suffering from that same mentality, that idea or notion mm-hmm. that the only black people who are valuable are black people who make six figures. And so if you read what I what I posted on Facebook, um, and some of you, and I noticed a couple of people look at what I posted today, I meant what I said when I say that that, House servant mentality, that plantation mentality, because that's where it's from. That's what black respectability politics is. An attempt to somehow convince black people that the best way of being fully enfranchised as citizens is to kiss white ass. And that's exactly what that black woman who supposedly thinks that she's my, um, (laughs) what does she say, that she's supposed to be my mentor. And I always remind her, no, you're not. She's a reminder to me of what never to be. And Firstly, that's I just want to always the advice that I give to you all. Do not sell your soul to move up. And you have it, sister. Go. Say it. I just I I just want to say that I'm first of all sorry that, that was your experience and I wanna say that that is shocking to me, but I can't. And and I, I just have to be as realistic as possible, and I, I don't want to get on this platform and say, oh, my God, I can't believe. I 100% can't believe. That yeah, you should be too surprised. I'm not. Right. I'm, I'm not, and, and that's the problem, that I'm, I'm not shocked. There's no look of I'm, – I'm, I'm not surprised. I do want to say that respectability, respectability politics is a quick way to shift blame. On, on black people for not 
accessing what other black people think that they should have or that will get us free. Um, when in all actuality, those, those parameters that are set will always be changed so that you always almost meet them, but you never quite make it there. So those are systemic right. things that when, you, when yes. you center whiteness and white supremacy, that scale, it slides. It moves. Yes. You always yes. get almost there, and you think that other black people need to get there too, and then it's going to shift again. So that should tell you that make your own damn scale. So I yes. say all that absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is not going to get us anywhere. It is not going to transform us to mimic what white supremacy has taught us. It, That's right. Cannot it will not, you, it won't save black people it won't save queer people and so to people no. who think that opposing these systems and mimicking them and and changing them is the way to get free I just have a rude awakening for you um and and it it, it won't you can be highly respected mm-hmm. you can drive a nice car you can you can do all of these things to, to center what you feel are, are your parameters of success or what white supremacy has taught you is success. Black capitalism is not black excellence. Black capitalism is not black freedom. Right? Those systems right. have to be eradicated from the start. There's no way to transform them. They have to be dismantled. You can't walk into the room. You can't switch things around. It, they are too far gone, too far back, and too harmful to black people and to queer people for us to continue to do the labor to try to change them. Because as much as I, 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 I hate that that's the experience of black women, I want them to understand that the labor that they're putting in to, to get to those particular places was never the amount of labor that white people put in. So even still, if you've made it to that particular point, you didn't do so at, at the rate at which they did it. The labor that you put in has, has worn on, on your body. It has worn on your community. It is why we suffer from, from health problems. It is why we suffer from so many things, because we want to center and we want to mimic so much of that. It stresses us on top of quick, just the quick, discrimination quick, and the quick. things that we have to face. I'm saying quick, 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 because if we were in a room, I would be clicking my fingers, quick, quick, quick. As in, yes, sister, I agree 100%. And you know what flows through my mind? There's a a couple of things. I'm not angry at Ice Cube. I see the pain in his eyes. I feel sorry for him. When I think about the 18% of black men who voted for Trump because they feel as though the Democrats are going to, um, quote, unquote, I guess, put them in their place, so to speak. And the thing about it is, is that I know where this is, what this is about. For black men in particular, um, and it's not just heterosexual black men. You had gay black men voting for Trump. So this is ideal or notion that in order to be respectable or respected as a man, um, they looked at him, this man who didn't follow the rules. What they see in terms of the so-called leadership um, within the Democratic Party, the non-progressives, um, those who tell black people, well, just, you know, just, just, just wait, just wait, just wait, and they still don't address it. Here's the thing. You see that in D.C., right? You see all these black folks. You see our mayor. She painted that, she painted that street, Black Lives Matter, and, um, and yet 
she's she's still bougie. She still hasn't changed. I didn't vote for her. See, Taylor, um, Black Lives um, Matter, and as we speak, white supremacists yes. are attacking and harming black residents. On that very plaza, yes. on those very tainted yes. letters, police are out yes. there protecting, and, doing and what I'm, they've always done, right. protecting white supremacist values. Right and I laugh. I I I I laugh at people like her, and I laugh at I laugh at people like these folk who live in Shepherd's Park, the Shepherd's Park that the black bourgeois, the ones, the six figure people, and they think that if they kiss white ass, that um, and if they get the right kind of Republicans and the right kind of Democrats, things will go back to normal. They're not going back to normal for a while. It's been exposed, like it or not, and if you are. One of those folks who basically wants things to go back to the things the way that things were, and it happening like that. And, and and you're right about the help, the cost, the help. You look at the numbers. Who's getting infected? Who's getting exposed? Who doesn't have access to fresh food? Who's getting evicted? Right. I think about the fact that mm-hmm. our students. We have students who are who are homeless. And yet, people who don't seem to quite get that, um, I think about that. I think about the fact that last year, um, last, well, it was like October 30th, actually, the day before um, um, Stalin, uh, for those of you who don't know what Stalin is, um, it's a a Sabbath for for those of us who recognize um, pagan holidays, and I do. And at the same time, I still pray to Jesus. I do all kinds of things religiously. Um, that's with those of us who are queer. That's what we do. We find our way around because if you just stick to one religion, you, you may not be treated very well. And that's the other thing. You get all of these people in positions of power: the minister, um, the politician, um, the multi-credential professors who are celebrities. Um, the administrators, you have people here at EDC, I do this, I'm, you know, just poked out. But the fact of the matter is we can't, we can't seem to understand what's really happening. I'm listening to no. professors tell me about students having panic attacks, suffering from anxiety, suffering from taking care of people who have gotten COVID-19 or who are suffering from COVID-19, high blood pressure, depression. Guess what? I have all of that shit. I have a job. I have benefits. I'm privileged in that sense. I live on a nice part of town. I'm privileged in that sense. And I'm dirt poor, barely making it. And for 17 years, I kept my mouth shut. And for 17 years, the pressure built until I had a grand mal seizure. It wasn't my first, but it was the first one in front of everybody. I am a prime example of what can happen if you allow yourself to become a mule for people who don't black women as full human beings. And, um, and unfortunately, people in our own community, we don't view our brothers and sisters as full human beings. That's what white supremacy does to us. And that means that when we see our coworkers, our colleagues, when we see our students suffering, we respond in a punitive voice. 
where they're not working hard enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. They have to be held accountable. That's what I keep hearing. Yep. Very unhealthy. But right now, faculty at UDC are being told, you're lucky to have a job. What kind of asshole says that to people? An asshole. But people who don't, you know, you know in other words, <laughs> really, it's an administrator, of course. Of course. <laughs> and so you have these people who wonder why, where are the students? Well, if everybody is depressed and anxious and the environment is filled with anxiety, depression, ism, this is the, this, this, this is the product of it. But it's not just here, hon. I'm afraid this is, this is nationwide. We have a president who, is, who, is, uh, who has several mental illnesses that are untreated. And because he's rich, they won't be, those illnesses won't be treated. But if you're black and you have mental illnesses, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to break the law and they're going to put you under the jail, or you do the work and you internalize it and you get sick. And that's what happens to the rest of us. And we still don't think that anything is wrong. Everything's fine. So, so. I want to talk about how those very experiences are not by happenstance. And that that was what my senior thesis actually ended up at the end actually substantiating the very idea that slavery, during slavery and after slavery, and in particular black women's health, has, is at the state that it's at as a direct result of practices during slavery and the, the lifelong effects of living in a world that is racist and, and sexist and transphobic and homophobic and at every point seeks to disenfranchise, harm, kill. Yes. Yes. Every every time yes. these are you're sharing your experience and I another thing just moving away from respectability I realized that in a large part of my research when I was talking about this it had to be substantiated by uh, research data 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 everything's data driven when data to me is enough for you as a black as a black femme and for other black femmes and for my mother who's a black femme and my grandmother to share their experiences at the hands of the medical industrial complex and at the hands of mm. all the systems that is data. That is yes. research. That is good enough for me to say that this is a public health problem. It doesn't need the white gays yes. looking in on it to determine how important it is. It's important because black hands have said it is. And so or even in that sense of, of right, but even in that sense of how we define research, for instance. My thing is if you only look to, right, if you only look to white men as the ultimate. Um, hello? As the, oh, hello. Hope you can hear me. No, I, can you hear I me? agree with you. Yeah, I can hear you. No, no, no. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, my God. Can we disconnect it? So, in other words, but see, that means that we need more black people doing the research, doing the writing, which is what it is that I do, but also being part of that digital process. There's a reason yeah. why I have this, why, why I'm, I'm paying this money that I really can't afford for this podcast 
to bring people. There's a reason why, um, you know, I've been doing this. And I've had people flow through this place um, who are sociologists, who are, um, well, my, my, my uncle, God rest his soul, who did have a Ph.D., um, and he did have a he went to Boston U, he went to Harvard, and he got all of the, the lovely credentials. And all, doing all of that work, it, um, it stressed him out, and it did kill him. Um, and that is something that, that is also a part of the reality of being, um, being an academic while being black. Um, I thought that coming to an HBCU, I would not, I would not be facing the same kind of of issues. And not only am I, have I had to deal with that, in some ways, even worse. UConn, everybody knows UConn is racist. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that. Um, you know, which is why when that Twitter campaign was out, I wasn't really surprised when I found out that the lady who was in charge of it was from UConn. And that's because UConn is a you know, it has its issues, its problems. You're in the middle of a cow field, for Christ's sake. And, you know, New England has its own nuances when it comes to dealing with race um, and social class. But Washington, D.C. Um, is a segregated city. It's segregated social class and race. Um, black people in Washington, D.C. segregate ourselves. That's exactly what we do. And UDC is a disruption of that. There are some people who don't like UDC because it disrupts that dynamic. It disrupts that hierarchy. It disrupts the idea or notion. There are certain class of people, certain skin color folk who should be servants, should remain in the servant class, the underclass, um, you know, the neglected, the oppressed because you have some of our own people who believe that in order to be worth anything, they have to put their foot on somebody's neck. And their response to racism from white people is by replicating that. So you're 100%. You, You hit the nail on the head with that. Because I don't see people who think like that or who behave like that as people who I should hate. They are people who I pity. And not with a not with a you know, certain kind of snobbery, but truly pity. Because those are people who are also doing work in our community and who represent our leadership and represent the voices. And that's why you have people like Ice Cube who are turning to racist white people because they don't know any better. That's why you have a white supremacist coming into Anacostia, attempting to run for office and black people supporting him because his own people treat him like shit. And that's why it's so important that we wake people up, even those people who are the elite among us, to let them know that they are not helping themselves and they're certainly not helping our people. We have to wake them up. And that's where you come in. I think that 
it's it's so layered and complex for me. And as a black femme and, and as a queer black femme, and, and I know you probably share that experience with me, being situated in this particular realm is, it's it's hard because I look at someone like Ice Cube and in the same breath, you know, I, I agree with you that I, I do pity him and I, I because just because we have a, a comprehensive understanding of why things like that happen. And in the same yeah. breath, I can say that people who gain capitalistic privilege, who aren't working class, who have privilege, have a responsibility, and I don't want to let them off the hook so easily. That's number one. And then number two, a lot of those people cause inextricable harm. And as a black queer femme, a lot of the harm that I face has been at the hands of of black men and and some um, black women. And in the same breath, I want all black people to be free. So in fighting for the liberation of all black people and wanting to free all black people, it... It's just a unique point for me to be in, to, to want everyone to be free. And then it's the same breath to hold people accountable and to say, in order for us to access the type of freedom that we want to see, I have to hold you accountable. And people don't want to be held accountable. They don't want to dethrone themselves. They don't want to give up no. the, the, the points of privilege that they have because it feels good to access it. And so it, right. it becomes this point where we have to get to a stage where things are um, people want to be redemptive for the harm that they've caused and I haven't seen enough people want to take accountability and do that because being situated in that privilege feels good to them. What, men don't want to, to dethrone themselves and, and, and dismantle patriarchy. It, nope. You, why would they? Why would they want? Why would they want to do that when when that would mean that they would have to um, actually pay attention to that word consent, for instance? Um, exactly. You don't want to pay attention to consent. You don't want to actually have a conversation with, with with a woman that says that you know you have a brain, you have a right to your you know to to, to your space. And even those who say that, okay, I'm an ally, but if you are still depending upon the hierarchy, if you're still depending upon that, if you're still relying on that silent male bullshit, then no, you're not. Not only are you not I'm an so ally, glad. you're still contributing. I'm <laughs> Why so glad, glad you said that. There's a point that I – I'm glad you said ally. I, I'm glad you said the word ally. What people have to understand, and I saw this in the 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 the, the uh, Black Lives Matter marketing tactics when when situations were happening earlier this year, uh, where, where businesses were were self-proclaiming themselves, and all these white bloggers and white people were self-proclaiming themselves as allies. And what people have to understand is that you don't decide that you are an ally. The people that you claim to serve, determine whether you are an ally. I'm not interested in allyship. I don't need you to agree with me. I need you to use whatever privilege you have to ensure that I'm protected and safe and that we can dismantle this. Allyship means nothing. You holding my hand in a photo and you posting Black Lives Matter is not allyship. It is not activism. An allyship and a comrade, someone who's committed to revolution, 
are people who are actually doing that work. So uh, among me, there are no allies until I see you actually doing the work. There, you do not self-proclaim yourself as an as an ally, and I right. quite frankly am not interested in, in any allyship of among anyone who does not share my same experience in society. Like it, <laughs> I mean, well. Well, so here's here's a question. So I have two questions. One is, question number one is, um, and you don't have, and and please don't, this is not me asking you to name names, because I'm not, because I really am not interested, Um, but I want the audience to kind of understand where, where, where we're going in this conversation. Number one, question number one. Um, are there allies when it comes to UDC's administrators, administration? And I mean going, going from directors and chairs all the way up beyond the president to board of trustees. Are there allies? Question number two, are there allies among faculty and staff? There are no wrong answers. I think that administration is as administrative does. And as administration does, I'm sorry. And I think that if if there were allies who were committed to ensuring that the university was at the state where it needed to be, they would no longer be administrators. I'm going to go to the second question. Um, absolutely. I've, I've met, in my time, I've met some amazing um, people who, who work in the faculty and staff realm and who are actually committed to ensuring students have what they need at every level. Um, and like you say, I don't have to name names, but I can definitely say that um, among some of my professors, among some of the staff, right? When I was experiencing things, I've had staff and professors who've acted as therapists, who've acted as parents, who, you know, walked me where I needed to go somewhere, who have had real conversations with me about what transformation can actually look like beyond me being gaslit. Um, because a lot of times the, the anti-allies are the people who, who aren't committed to understanding my passions within academia, which which don't align with the traditional passions of some people, especially within my major, I definitely had to lean on, on those allies to, even when I was being gaslit, even when people were telling me, you know, like, these things don't matter or, or, or this or that, they were there to provide so much support. And, and that's honestly the reason why I'm in the, the state that I'm in and why I'm even obtaining this degree. Like if I, if I could break, break it apart, right, because it's, it's a piece of paper at the end of the day and, and rip it up and share it, there are so many people that I could say I would give a piece to just, just for the support that, that I've had. Um, even in small ways and big ways, whatever way, um, those particular people, in my opinion, were committed to the transformation and growth of students. They mm-hmm. they certainly had asserted themselves as um, an ally, and again, I I determined that they were allies based off of my experience. They didn't self proclaim themselves or or 
use a feel-good politics. Oh, I'm helping this black girl do, you know, all this. It, it wasn't like that. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, I, so I, have a, I, I have a another question for you. Um, when I told you that I was going to leave it to you as to whether you want to call me Sherry Ann or Dr. Turpin, how does that make you feel? Um, just knowing you, I know that respectability is the farthest thing from you. So you had no concern in – you were more concerned about my comfortability than what you mm-hmm. actually wanted to be identified as. And I right. appreciate that, but right. also I think that in, in this society, unfortunately, labels are just important. Labels t- tell us yes. what we need to know about people, what people, how people identify themselves is how you want to refer to them as. And so in whatever way you right. were, were comfortable, I was okay with, I prefer to call you Dr. Turpin, Dr. Sherry Ann, just because I think right. you worked hard for their PhD, right? And so I want to respect yeah, that, I did. especially I did. knowing your experiences. Um, right. And, and that well, doesn't but mean that's the same. Right. But, you know but what at I the mean? same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do. But at the same time, I think it's also important to note this, because this is something that I that, that I um, that I noticed. The first thing that I noticed when I when I hit um, UVM, University of Vermont. First of all, the guy who was uh, running the writing program um, had a certain love for tequila shots. Um, my experience with faculty, um, well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is a New England thing. Maybe it's because you're, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. Maybe it's because you're not in tight-ass D.C. where people are comfortable, you know, um, having parties over, over people's houses and whatnot. Um, Dr. Gottheimer, um has more of that energy. <laughs> and we're not getting drunk or anything like that. It's, you know, people sharing um, family and having that kind of that positive kind of energy. That's pretty mm-hmm. much how we've kind of become, but it took some time and some people had to just go and retire before we got to that point. It took this long. Whereas when I got to when I got to UVM, even as bad as UConn was, there were still you still even people who were assholes to you, you still could have a have a beer and, and still you know, talk about literary theory or whatever it is that you're talking about or whatever it is that you're teaching. There's something, there's a, there's a collegiality that is missing on this campus that comes from this crazy D.C. politics, comes from people being insecure. And so what I've noticed is that, and I don't know what it's like at Howard. I have no clue, so I can't comment on Howard, but I can tell you, that here people cling to it, the doctor this, professor this, professor that, almost as if to say, well, those letters behind your name have worth and value. But what I've also made note is that those same people, you're not going to hear them say jack shit about what it is they're actually working on, what they're writing, what they're researching. <laughs> they're not going to talk about how it helps the community. They're not doing any of that. So what's the use of having those, those, those letters if you're not doing any work with it? And that tells me a lot of things. It tells me that 
they really didn't get into this business for the right reason. They got into it because they need they need to feel good. They, they have low self-esteem. Um, I didn't get into it for that reason. Um, I got into it because I love writing. Um, I got mm-hmm. into it because I love poetry. I got into it because um, I wanted to write black feminism, and I wanted mm-hmm. to I wanted to be able to, to connect with the Audre Lords and the Bill Hooks, these writers who I encountered, mm-hmm. not as a result of what I learned at EDC, but as a result of me doing my own reading, Alice Warkel, all of these writers who I did not encounter at UDC as an undergrad. And mm-hmm. coming back here, why do I stay? I've had people ask me, why do you stay at UDC? Because I'm determined to make sure that more students, such as yourself, are able to come away from a place like UDC to change this world so that we don't keep having these incidents like what we're seeing downtown. We need more people like you. We need more women and men and others, right? And so that's that's what gives me hope. And so... What did you get out of my class? You took all kinds of classes from me. What did you get I out took, of it? And what, what did you carry with you as you did your work on campus? Let's, let's, let's go. <laughs> so I, um, within my, my program and my major, there were very few classes, electives or not, that were specifically um, talking about like black feminism and and why I wanted to to study it and so that in itself made it difficult to access classes. Um, within the political science department, there was one black feminist and and she's amazing. She's still there. Um, so she was the only person you know at the community college level that I saw teaching these types of classes and and transforming traditional political language in a way that was from a black feminist lens. And so. Starting in her classes, right. I, I found group classes, and I actually a friend told me about some of the classes that she taught and just how transformative some of the um, the, the readings were and, and the conversations that you all were having to her academic experience. And I was like, oh, I need to test these classes out. Um, so I think the first class that I took was the it wasn't like a digital class. I think it was an actual Black feminism like reimagined course or something like that. And I felt in 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 academia, I, I it was the first time besides that initial experience um, as like a, a a freshman that I realized that academia has the responsibility of centering Black feminism just as any other theoretical framework or, or purview or or, or Marxism right. and, and all those other isms. Black feminism is is has the validity and the the, the recourse to be studied in a manner that is respected and that right. deserves the, the attention and, and the, the money, and, right, and the, the materials that every other academic program has. And so in your class, it, the reading, um, some of which I had read on my own already, um, only kind of strengthened some of the conversations that we were having, right. um, the project. Right. It was your your um, 
you know, you teach English, like you're within the English department, but all of your courses, even ones who may not necessarily be called black feminism, are taught from a black feminist lens, and that in itself is transformative. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I'm thinking about the project, some of the things that I was able to share, um, and it was the most visible I have felt in in my academic experience when everyone else is constantly, especially in political science, censoring these white systems, censoring them and wanting to infiltrate them. And black feminism right. tells me that they can be eradicated. And what can we do to, to yeah. eradicate them so that people can get free? And, and so my experience was a little different from everyone else's, and I needed your classes to really hone in on strengthening some of the arguments that I was making and and just understanding that what I had to say was valid and that it made sense and that there was no one that could convince me otherwise because here I have this academic herself who is saying this is what we're going to study from a, a an academic standpoint using academic language yes, yes. and and, and decentering writing in this in right. this particular experience and i think that i think that you've captured something that unfortunately um some of my colleagues um don't seem to quite understand and that is that that there is a such thing as Black feminism, as black studies itself, as being a legitimate area of study. I never see yeah. so many people so frightened at the thought of actually looking at black culture, looking at race, looking at um, not just black people's lit or People of color, Latina, mm-hmm. Asian, mm-hmm. I've never seen so many people mm-hmm. who seem to be so opposed to actually looking at that. But beyond humanity, because there's, I, I don't, you have to be able, you, you really have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to figure out that humanity is just being squeezed out. Um, it's, it's, and we're not the only campus where we're seeing that. And yeah. you can see the results. You know, all you have to do is look that down, and that's just that's that's what happens when you get rid of humanity. You, you, get, a, you get a bunch of people who, who um, you know, who bitch and moan and whine because they didn't get their guy um, in, in office. I, I guess the the it's almost as if to say, um, you have people who want to say, well, we're an HBCU. We just don't have anything that actually. Um, that actually covers or actually recognizes or shows anything about what it means to be an HBCU, what it means to be a part of um, the African-American community. Um, We don't have a history department. We don't have foreign languages, so we can't look at the diaspora um, or comparative lit. Um, we have two departments where you actually have courses that require um, that you study um, black writers, black lit, um, political science, and English. And we don't really do very much for Black History Month. Um, 
it almost seems to be looked upon with some sort of offense if you actually make mention of that. And we're not, and it goes without saying, we have zero when it comes to women. So if you don't have anything with regard to women, um, and if it's not coming out of our multicultural center, then it's not coming out of anywhere. When I first got here, the only thing that was for women was a tea day, which I actually found to be offensive. Um, and it took some years before they actually figured out, gee, yeah, that might be a little offensive. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's almost as if there's a, it's, it's like people are kind of stuck in time. Stuff that you wouldn't see at PWI, you, you see here. People expressing things that are extremely Right. I've had, I had a professor refer, refer, right, right, respectability. I, there's a professor who is in a leadership position, and I'm not going to mention her name, but if she listens, then she knows I'm talking about her. Um, yeah, there is a problem with referring to gays, lesbians, transgender people, and bisexual people as lifestyle. This person, this is this this is this Ooh. was this person's response to um, the Sabina Center and and tag. And so yes, there is homophobia on this campus. You and I both know that. Yes, there is racism on this campus. Yes, and it's not just against black people. Um, <laughs> you have people who are. People of, of other of other races who've experienced this stuff. It's the model student and the model faculty member and the model administrator is white, male, upper class, and heterosexual, um, and um, a, you know, able-bodied, so to speak. Yep. Well, then that's what, yep. that's the result that you're going to get. And so you'll have yep. people who will uphold that, even at their own expense. Why else? How else would you explain the people voting for people like Trump? How else would you explain poor white people voting for somebody like Trump, even though they're starving? How else would you explain women voting for a man who is, in my view, a rapist? Um, he is a rapist. A white supremacist. Yeah, he is, and a rapist. Yes, yes. And so you have people, you know, who go against their own interests if they think that that's going to make them feel better, if they think that that's going to make them feel as though there's proximity. Well, we, we know about proximity to whiteness. Well, there's proximity to maleness or proximity to masculinity or proximity to um, male supremacy. So we have all of that. We have all of those issues on this campus. And nobody's talking about them. Nobody's doing anything about them. Um, well, I won't say nobody's doing anything about them. Nobody's talking about them. We are talking about them. But those who are in positions of power who could do something are not talking about them and would prefer if we stop talking about them. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, surely besides the, the woman you mentioned from Branch Campus Community College and myself, Surely we are not the only people on this campus who are feminists or intersectionality, intersectionality feminists or black feminists. Surely we are, 
Surely we are not the only. Surely there must be somebody on this campus. There must be among faculty, administrative staff, whatever. There's got to be somebody besides Trinine. Who? Where do we go? Are you asking me to identify someone? Well, it's a rhetorical question, but in a, I'm not asking you to identify. But I'm, I'm asking you: Is that is is there a space? Is there you know? Is there hope? Is there are there people on this campus who who are actually aware enough that this kind of thinking has to end? I think in that, other words, you're no, leaving. There are, you, you, you're leaving for people behind, and they want to know. Who do we who do we turn to? Because I don't have the answer to that myself. I'm thinking of the answers to that as we're talking about it. I think that <laughs> the most important part is the, just the, the people you just named me, yourself, Miss McNally. We all have a a very particular way in which we, we go about things and, and some of it's different, some of it's similar. We have to I'm not I'm not saying we as in us. I'm saying that in order for black feminism to emerge in, in the ways that it, it it needs to we have to be safe. There's safety that has to be accessed. There are resources that have to be given and it has to be known that this work is valued and that the people who do this particular work are seen as valid and paid fairly. Mm-hmm. And that so you know what I just matters. So, so let me let me just kind of give you a sense of what I just did there. The question that I asked, the urgency that I asked, I wanted you to say something and I wanted you to say that word and you said it. Thank you. Safety. So that leads to my next question. Is UDC a safe space when it comes to academic freedom, when it comes to black women, when it comes to queer people of any race, when it comes to people of other colors, when it comes to poor people? Is UDC a safe space? I'm going to share my experience, and hopefully that will answer that question just as someone who, who lives at, at some of those or most of those intersections. Um, there were times where the only people who I felt safe around and who protected me were the other black feminists on campus, some of which you named and, and some of which who aren't named. Um, so in my experience, it my safety was always contingent upon the, the the women and femmes who look like me being there to protect me and support me as an institution, as far as my research goes, I feel like it was tainted. I feel like it was shifted, shook, moved to that of a white male lens so that it was palatable to be graded and viewed and read by white men as long as my research did not, <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I could be radical but not too radical. I could be this but not too that. And, and that was just my experience. Is it safe? What I what I say as a black feminist, I would just walk through the doors and, and you know, kumbaya? No. 
Um, and there's a lot of work that has to be done that black femmes cannot keep continuing to do without them being able to access their own safety and, again, ensuring that their needs are met. Because everyone else's needs seem to be getting met. Um, the, the, wow. We got programs. We got, we got centers. We got services. We got and, – and, and black feminism, and like you said, the humanities, those needs aren't being met. And when your basic needs aren't met, you aren't safe until transgender women can go in a class. And, and I, I was protecting trans students at the hands of a professor who decided to be disrespectful and transphobic. And the only person who actually <laughs> stood with me in those meetings and, and, and held my hand and said, what you're saying is right, this is wrong, was another black feminist. And so, so no, un- until – we get to a point where we can name things what they are and we don't want to hush things up so bad. Um, no. I want to see trans students have the ability to freely move around campus with their pronouns respected, with their gender identity respected. I want them to be able to sit in class. I want poor students to feel respected. I want them to feel like they have the same access to academia and that they deserve the same access to academia as anyone else who, who can pay for it. And I think UDC, we, we have to remember that a, a number of our students are, are black and, and are low income. So what are we doing to meet their particular needs? And again, until those needs are met, they are not safe. We, we can talk the talk. We can walk the walk. We have to make our campus accessible, accessible. We have to, if that's metro, if that, that, that's transportation, that's this, that's food, all these other things, then that's what needs to be done to ensure that our students can thrive. It's not a, you should have figured that out or, or you should have, no. It's a, this is our responsibility. We want to raise up leaders. We want to spend money to train leaders because that's what colleges say they want, they want to right. do. They want to transform the workforce, right. right? So in order to do that, people's basic needs need to be met. Safety, basic needs. Until that happens, No. And that, that's just my experience right. and, and in my opinion. Right. Right. Where's the right. money going? Who, how committed are we to ensuring that these spaces are safe? When money comes around, whose pocket is it going to? What type of direct services are we giving to our students? How much are we funding to ensure that our students have access to safety? And, and again, capital, <laughs> unfortunately, it, it gives you a safety net and a privilege, and it has to be used in a way that, those students that live in the margin have access to it, who are deserving of, of all yes. the many privileges yes. and, and things that academia gives everyone else. Right. And I want to I wanna also underline what you also said, and that's not said enough, the work that FEMS do. The work that FEMS do. And, of course, FEMS, for those of you who are listening, does not necessarily always mean gendered women. Mm-hmm. does not always mean transgendered women either. Mm-hmm. does not always mean gay men. Um, my best male friend is femme and heterosexual and cisgender. He's a cisgendered man who is also femme and hetero. And he and I went through UConn together. And He's white. And he and I have, we've, we've been through some very similar experiences 
not only as graduate students, but in our, you know, at our respective institutions, and that is the burden that fans carry. There's this idea or notion that if you are, if you're butch or if you're um, hypermasculine, that you don't, you shouldn't have to carry any um, any emotional burdens. And what that translates to is that when it comes to issues like these, for instance, on this campus, what I've noticed is that we're expected to express, we're expected to speak up, and we're usually labeled as being troublemakers, um, you know, mouthy, whatever, especially if you're, if you're black, right? Um, mm-hmm. This idea or notion that, you know, if you're causing trouble, you know. But truth be told, if we don't speak up and if we're leaving it to those who like that, Gary Cooper um, image of the um, strong, silent male or the strong, silent um, butch or strong, silent stud, um, which to me is a very limiting notion of, and it's still with the binary, that you're either butch or thin, there's no, uh, there's no room for, for the in-betweens. And so what that means is that... Um, Everything is modeled after that. And that's actually very much a part of that corporate model, of the corporate mindset. And UDC right now is basically, um, you know, enjoying that ride. And I'm using that word enjoy with, with you know, in, in a sort of ironic fashion. Um, enjoying that ride of the corporate model, which is very much based on, White men, strong, silent white men who don't give a fuck about mm-hmm. anybody but themselves, don't give a fuck about anybody but profit. If that's the model um, and if the ideal student and the ideal professional is that same type of person, then that means that the people who you're supposed to be serving don't get served. It means that the people who work there, their needs are not served. And the only people who are progressing are those who take on that, that mindset. There's another there's another word for there's another word for a person who um, is incapable of empathy, um, who is um, self-centered, um, who ignores the pain of other people. Um, a psychopath. That's what we have in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> people are frightened because 73 million people decided that they would rather have a psychopath. So much so that they're actually willing to give up democracy to have a psychopath. These are the kind of people mm-hmm. who probably would have voted for somebody like Hitler, right? And we're finding out, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it's not just white people. It's black and brown people. Yes. It's not just men. It's women. Yes. Yep. So if, we're, if people are willing to do that, to support that, shouldn't it be any surprise that we're seeing some of the same kinds of behavior, the same kind of thinking, the same lack of empathy? on this campus, and if that is the case, 
is it sufficient to just do a little bit of yoga or a little bit of positive thinking, or do we need to do something else? That's what's popular so like right now. Yeah. That's, 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 that's what's popular right now, the positive thinking, the, oh, let's do yoga, um, mindfulness, whatever, you know. And I'm not trying to be negative towards people who, 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 um, who practice that, but what I have noticed is that it's very much class-based. If you're a person who is yes. in a position of authority and in a position of um, privilege, simply telling a person who does not have a place to live or who is suffering from depression or suffering from anxiety or suffering from any of the effects of the isms or someone who is caring for someone who has COVID-19 or any of these other illnesses that are related to our current condition, being mindful is not going to cut it. Not going to cut it. Present music is not going to cut it, is it? No. What do we do? What would you say to, as a, as a student, to those of us who are faculty, what would you say to us? What do we need to do to make it, to, 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 to do what it is that has to be done to, to change this environment? And then I want you to apply that same question to those administrators who listen to this. Yeah, they listen to my stuff. I don't think they really care, but let's, let's, see, let's, let's see what happens. I want, I want you to say it because maybe someone such as, who is wise, such as yourself, maybe they'll listen. So maybe. What do we, the, what do we, the faculty, need to do? What do we need to fix? Um, so as far as faculty goes, it's important to know faculty is faculty. Like, and, and each member of faculty is, is, is basically what I'm getting at is that when you look at the makeup of your faculty body, you, you have to start looking in a way, right, when we talk about looking at, at life through a, a black feminist from an intersectional lens, we're looking at why white male professors make more money, why white male professors get access to better programming, they get access to better materials, better resources, more guests, why um, white women professors get lesser access but still an, an, a, a higher amount or a, a better access to certain things, how black male professors um, operate within academia and, 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 and black women, of course, and then black femmes and black queer people. And so looking at the makeup of your faculty, you have to look at why this particular person is getting this, why this particular person is getting that. And as a body of individuals who represent the, the highest and, and pretty much the best of the best in academia, right? You're talking about people with multiple degrees, uh, very colorful um, regalia um, that, 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 you know, people wear. Even in that, there, are, there is privilege and there's hierarchy that has to be dismantled. Um, so for white male professors, if you know that there are particular situations happening within your department, that are affecting the way black faculty can do their job, then it's up to you to say something, right? All the labor K 
cannot and, and will not and should not go on black femme professors and black um, masculine professors um, just because we're at an HBCU, right? So in one breath, you can't assert yourself as dominant and as white and, and come in and, and, you know, take over a department and then in the same breath want to fall back when something happens because, oh, I'm at an HBCU. Um, and I, I think that's important that even within HBCUs, we center whiteness and white supremacy. We think that white people have an academic advantage and that they are smarter. I'm, I'm being completely honest because, because this is what people think. If your school has white professors, oh, you're doing something good. Oh, you, you, y'all, y'all are actually learning. Right, and, and, and administrators carry that, that same idea. If we have these white males who are teaching these particular subjects, then they must be better. Then, then our school may get more funding. And it's up to administrators and themselves to say, hey, we are a historically black college. This is who we choose to center, right? We want to dismantle respectability. We want to dismantle all these systems. And we want to say that our black faculty is good enough, that our black staff is good enough, that they are just as smart that they deserve to be compensated just as well. Because the black faculty, like I said, are the ones putting in the, the additional work, right? What you're doing right now with me is additional work. I'm taking a course with you. I've done the requirements for that course, and even still you've made a platform in order for me to share some of my experiences, right? That, that, yes. That's different. That's labor. Okay. Right, and that, that yes. needs to be paid for. <laughs> and well, I, I want to make that clear that black <laughs> professors go that, out of their way. right. Right. It's it's not as if I
even as an HBCU. Right. But it's been a it's interesting that you say that and you bring up gentrification. Um you you're seeing the you're seeing a you're seeing an end product of something that started in two thousand nine. Um when well actually no, more like two thousand eight. There was a um and it's interesting. My my father knows um knows somebody who used to teach at um used to teach at Howard. He's retired. And of course he always um asked, you know, how am I? And he said something that my father didn't seem to quite understand, but I understood it that every time we have a change, um in the um every time we have a change in the presidency, um, there's sort of an anticipation. There was an ex- there, there was an expectation that the next president was going to be a Republican back in 2008. There are a lot of people who who were very surprised to see Obama really just kind of overwhelm. But by then it was too late. They brought in Alan Sessoms, who apparently um, is very much a part of that that Black Republican um, pipeline, and mm-hmm. um, he made no secret of his gentrification goals and he was pretty much there because you have some people in this town who really would like to see um, D.C. itself be completely gentrified. Um, It's not as uncommon as one might think. If you travel, you travel abroad, you go to to some place like Paris, you go to London, um, and you'll see those who are privileged who live in the city and those who are not who live on the outskirts. And then you go to some place like Quito, Ecuador, um, or um, any of the um, major cities that, that you see in, in, um, in South America where mm-hmm. the wealthy have access to public transportation, live in the city. Mm-hmm. or live in gated communities, and the poor live on the outskirts and don't have access to running water um, or any of the other um, privileges such as heat, such as being able to, um, you know, to have access to the basics. And in some ways, it's sort of kind of what's, what's happening where poor people are being pushed to the outskirts where you have Metro basically, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen um, it, if it's not properly funded um, and it just so happens that poor people are being pushed out, um, which means that we could very well end up like, I don't know, San Francisco, where you have 20 million people who are homeless. Right. San Francisco is so expensive, you can't even go to the outskirts and find some place to live. And that's happening here as well. And so yep. you have some people who seem to have this idea or notion that the only people we should worry about are, are those who own property and who can afford to live here. And if you can't afford to live here, then, well, then you're on your own. Um, and that goes beyond just race, although race is very much a part of it. 
I said earlier, this is a segregated city. It's more segregated than Cleveland, Ohio. I thought Cleveland was bad. This place is horrible. Um, and the first time I lived here, um, I sort of kind of got it, and I kind of dealt with it. And then I came back here, and I'm like, oh, my God, this place is even worse. It got worse. And it doesn't matter who sits in that White House. It's the people who are running this city, if that's their mindset, to gentrify the city, then you're going to see all of the all of the um, the city agencies pretty much kind of abiding by that, right? Well, UDC is a city agency. It's an accredited institution, but it's also a city agency, and so you have that you know so you have that that tension with that. If a city agency is very much kind of under whatever political climate, whatever whatever is flowing. And that's exactly why it's important that black people and brown people and white people who are allies make it a point of voting and make it a point of not just thinking that it, if it's a Democrat that it will work out well. Maybe it's time that we start seeing it for what it is and start voting out these um, rhinos, so to speak. I know some of us are using that right now, but we've got plenty of rhinos. They've been living here for way too long and not been challenged. And maybe it's time for the progressives to start pushing out. And maybe it's time that we insist that whoever runs this city, whoever runs our agencies and institutions, at the very least need to have an understanding of intersectionality and black feminism and be truly committed um, to eradicating the isms and eradicating hierarchies that maintain these these isms. Higher education should be a center of that, and an HBCU should be. I don't know what happened to us. I know that UDC started out as such, but there's some there's some challenges. And I know that there's some people who would like to say, oh, well, things are better. Ooh, Ooh the privilege in that. I think things I, are better. Yeah, well, had I not had if a... you can had access, not had, had, what you consider better? Yeah. Look, I had, a, I had a grandma seizure in September um, while talking on the phone with my father about this place. Things are not better yet. Um and I'm just now recovering from that um, leakage, spinal fluid leakage that was, that was going down my throat and my nose. So you folks who are just now listening, I suffer from intracranial hypertension. Um, and that's the kind of thing where, yeah, you got to lose weight, but you also have to deal with your, your stress issues and your anxiety issues. Uh, unfortunately, UDC is a very stress-filled um, environment that in many ways is very toxic. And so if you're a person who is suffering from what I suffer from, you got to take a whole lot of meds and you got to do a whole lot of work. And one of them is telling the truth about where you, where you're living and what your circumstances are. This is part of my therapy, teaching 
teaching AJ and others how to fight back and how to not allow the illness that is keeping our community from progressing to continue to advance. Yeah. You were going to say. I always want to just thank you for always sharing your experience. And it's so important to, to center your experience just within these institutions. Like we see the ways in which we look at numbers all day long and we can say, you know, we're the safest campus or we're the this campus or that campus or whatever have you. Um, but safety is, is as simple as ensuring that, right, like I said, needs are met. And so safety and a, a part of the safety plan going forward, maybe should be looking at what experiences our faculty and our students have. What are the detrimental effects that gentrification and that racism and racial bias are having on our students and, and those who are within this institution, and what can we do to fix it? Safety is not always this idea of of we physical safety. A lot of times, it's, it's emotional safety. It's, it's getting rid of the gaslighting. It's making sure that when people come to work, when people come to school, that that they can thrive, and that this is an institution that centers the black experience. And, and there goes that. There goes that word again. There goes that word again. Gaslighting and the other word, grooming. Grooming, and so that's those are two, two terms, and so you know grooming. Whenever people bring up the word grooming, it's usually in reference to predators um, doing that to their to their prey. So you definitely have that on this campus, and you definitely have the gaslighting, which is something that predators also do. And so, in order to deal with eliminating gaslighting and grooming on our campus, predatory behavior must be called out. And it's got to be dismantled. And that's just the way that is. That cannot just be sort of maintained. Not if we, if we want UDC to, to make it through the next decade. So we, um, we've talked for quite a bit. Um, and so I want to kind of round this out by talking a bit about your project, what do you see yourself doing with that project once you've um, graduated? What would you like to do with it? So I just want to note that my project has been my baby. Um, over, over the years that I've studied it, I've tweaked it, and I can say that Going forward with it, I want to ensure that people are aware and have access to the language that is black women, black femmes, black queer people, black men are dying at the hands of systems that center white supremacy and actually are intentional about causing harm to them. And and that, that was what my research to, to, to find out. We, we talk about, I want people to know that causal factors don't come from, from, from happenstance. They don't come out of nowhere. 
So this notion, I looked at health outcomes, and specifically black maternal health outcomes. There is just this predisposed idea that black people are just more, insert whatever, black people are just less, insert whatever. Compared to white people, black people do, insert whatever. And we look at these problems as if they're innate issues that, that are stemmed from our DNA, right? We say all the time black people are more disposed to, to hypertension. And we look at those things as a, as a way to think that somewhere within the DNA of African-American people, we are predisposed. And so I want us to get out of the idea of thinking that our genetic makeup just wasn't good enough or it was different or it was so challenging that people couldn't figure out why because we found out why, and research shows us why. It shows us every day that implicit bias, that racism, that sexism, that transphobia, that homophobia, that class issues are all directly linked to why black people have issues accessing, if they can access, health care or education or whatever thing that they want to access, that these are actual systemic things. They are not just, they didn't come out of nowhere. And so in my research, um, I was just looking at black mothers dying. Like my, I, I have a black mother. I, I was born to a black mother who was born yes. to a black mother. Yes. And yes. I, I say that in my work a lot. I say black mothers are dying. Black mother, and I continue to say it because it is a public health crisis, and it's not being treated as such. Mm. I, I say that to ensure that people know that this particular thing is a is a problem, a big problem. That the ways in which we study the the police systems and injustices that affect African American men and women and trans people and non-binary people. The health system does the same thing, especially to black mothers and black infants. And so in what ways can we look at doctors and, and the harm that they cause and say, like, hey, this needs to stop? Like, we, we understand the harm of, of police and, and how those systems need to be eradicated. And now my research has just shown me that in every system, in, in education, in academia, in the medical system, it is, it is destined destined from its very inception to disrupt, to harm, to kill, to not protect black people. And so what are we going to do, right? There, there is no genetic anything that says that black people should be forced to, to, to maneuver in these particular ways, and it is killing us. It is, it is literally taking away such valuable parts of, of black people's lives and, and how they get to access life with their children and their babies. And it has to stop. And somebody has to say something. And so in my research, I just, I'm really so committed to looking at housing, to looking at healthcare, to looking at, it's just a number of so many things that are a direct result of the discrimination and racial bias that we face. It, it, we, especially if we were talking about respectability, so much of the blame for the state of black people is put on other black people and how we didn't do this enough or how we didn't do that enough. Well, research says that even when black women have college degrees, 
even when we make a lot of money, even when we're Serena Williams, the best athlete in the world, right, the most decorated athlete in the world, doctors don't listen. Doctors don't take our health concerns seriously. Doctors don't care when we say we're depressed. We function function as normal when we are suffering, and that has to stop, right? So what does care look like? What does support look like? How do we support each other? What alternatives to these systems do we have or that we can create for each other so that we're able to care for one another in a, in a way that um, is, is going to save us? Audre Lorde taught us the importance of, of self-care, right? Self-care is not these masks and these, these face masks and all these other things. Self-care is community care. And what does that look like for us? And then in the same breath, people have to understand that when we build these institutions, that we, we're so quick to want to include everyone. And, I, and I, I know I might get some slack for this. People might not agree with me. We so badly want to be inclusive that we lose the opportunity to share amongst one another and to care for one another because we want to invite everyone. And unfortunately, everyone cannot be invited when you talk about community care. So if things are specifically for black people, if there are spaces that are specifically for black people and those are safe spaces, then they need to be able to maintain, right? We, we saw Black Wall Street. We saw all these things and, 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 and white people sought to destroy it every time that we tried to build our own. So how do we keep building? Right? What does protection look like? What, what does us sitting down and actually thinking about how we can protect our black trans sisters, how we can protect black sisters, how we can protect our own black mothers to ensure that they're safe? And, and that is the work that I seek to do, that I'm, each day that I wake up, I'm learning different ways to access and to navigate and to give resources, direct resources. And as I'm talking about that, there's this is one point, I know we don't have a lot of time, um, I work in the nonprofit world right now, and I, I love my experience. I love the organization that I work for. And in the same breath, I can say white supremacy has to be decentered because we do not need overseers. And so what that means is mm. in the nonprofit world, we have black women who have been committed and black femmes and black organizers who have been committed to doing work in their communities for years, and we're not giving a dime. And when white people and white institutions come along and they put their buildings in the hood, they get millions of dollars, and these white people, in particular white women, come in and they, well, they want feel-good politics, right? And so, so they come in and they, they get these, these good jobs and they want to help in the hood. We don't need that. We can give those direct resources to the black people and the black mothers and the black fathers who have been doing this work in their communities. We can put it in their hands. We don't need the resources to be given out and divvied by white people, right? Because that's how Trump won. Because too many people mm-hmm. were focused on being overseers and not working on their racist aunts and uncles, right? So they should have been mm-hmm. over there, and mm-hmm. we should have been working on ways to gain access mm-hmm. and resources for our own community. And that is what I seek to do every single morning that I open my eyes. What do direct resources mm-hmm. look like? How can I get it in my hand mm-hmm. so that we can get it out to the people that we need? And that, that has been my experience. That is what I seek to do with my research and in every day of my life. As I go forward in academia, that will always be the purview that I use because that is what black feminism teaches us. Black feminism right. teaches us to start with those that live at the margins and ensure that they're okay. And when they are okay, everybody benefits. Right, right, right. 
That's so the story in the book. <laughs> you'll stick to it. So we are down to the last 15 minutes. And so um, this is your time to um, give a parting message, um, you know, to your advisor, to your dean, to your chair, um, our CAO, to our president, um, to the board, to uh, the student government, um, to to uh, to 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 tag. This is your time. So um, the floor is open for you. Oh, and whoever else. Um. No, so I would say just, just to my institution as a whole that I, I hold in the highest regard. And I am so adamant about ensuring that accountability measures are in place and that people are held accountable because of the love that I have for UDC and how I want this institution to be what I know it can be. Right, Holding someone accountable is a labor of love. It's a way of saying you to rectify this thing so that I can continue to be here and so that people who look like me can continue to be here. And so while I'm harsh in my words, I, I really do seek to hope that every individual from, from every level actually is committed to being held accountable so that we can say, hey, how can we fix this? What can we do to change this? And, and that is the most important thing to me. But that has to happen when people want it to happen. And until people are willing to be held accountable, there won't be change. There won't be structural change. There'll be little things that people think that are changed, but they, they actually won't be. Um, to, to all the student organizers, to everyone that I've met, to, to all my advisors, all the black fems on campus, um, you, you saved me. Black fems have always saved me. The black fems in my life have always given me food, given me shelter, given me advice. Giving me everything that I needed to get to this point, and for that, my commitment to them will always be the most important thing to me, is, is looking out for and always censoring the experiences of black femmes, because they are the only people who have ever saved me, and who, in the position where I could obtain a college degree, which I know in itself is such a privilege and such a a right that everyone doesn't have access to. So if not for black fans like you, Dr. Turpin, and like Trinice, and like Melinda, uh, and all these, these other people who I've met, there, w- there would be no me obtaining a degree and being a graduate. Um, and so I just want to make that clear. Um, and then to just, oh, man, um, to everyone who is not doing the work and you want to start doing the work and you want to use this as a, as a point of, of wanting to see a more equitable society, wanting to see a better UDC, do your part. Be held accountable. Say, hey, I did this particular thing and that caused harm. Know that you have caused harm and know that in causing harm, right, people are willing to forgive or not to forgive, and and none of that matters besides the fact that you wanting to make a change to see things be different. Right, look outside of your privilege, look outside of censoring yourself, and look at who it is that needs help and resources the most and do your part to get that to them. And, and that is the work. That is 
ensuring that what you say that you are doing, you are actually doing, coming directly from the mouth of a black stem. Um, yeah, that's it. Dr. Turpin, just thank you for, for being you, for for showing me a face in academia that does not have to live by the status quo, that does not have to, to center whiteness, that does not have to show and jive and, and, and who can show up authentically as themselves in every space, in spaces that deem to think that you don't need to be there, you do. You know that, right? I don't need to tell you that. You're fully aware of that. Um, and, and the labor that you have extended does not go in vain. It, it does not go unnoticed. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you for, for always doing the work and, and being committed to the work and being committed to us to ensuring that we can do what we need to do and, and, and thrive. And I, I'm just forever grateful um, for you and for this platform and allowing me in, within academia to, to center my experiences um, and to see them as valid. So thank you. Thank you for coming on on, on my show. First, first of all, thank you for trusting me. Um, trust is not easy. And, and so thank you for that. Um, you are always welcome to come back and share even more about what you are doing and what you are building. Um, your work is very important. And um, don't be surprised if you get tapped um, to, to, write a, to write a chapter. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so for those of you who are listening, um, we're doing this podcast out of love. This is, this is out mm-hmm. of love. This is not out of hate. This mm-hmm. is not out of vengeance. This is not out of anger. Um, and certainly this is not out of fear. Because if we were afraid, we wouldn't be doing this. But we're clearly not. And if there's anything that I want you all to come away with is that eventually you're going to have to face whatever it is that you, that you avoid and that you cannot allow people to silence you. Your no. silence will not save you, as Audrey no. Lord once wrote. And she was dead on with that. And at the same time, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So for those of you who thought that by using the master's tools, you were somehow um, doing the work, you have yet to understand what the work really is. My suggestion is that you read Sister Outsider. Start with that and then move your way forward. Read the poetry. Um, Write the poetry. Um, And let's do the work. That's where it's at. That's really where it's at. All right, so... You all um, who are listening, thank you for, for joining us. Um, this will not be the last podcast that we do, me and AJ. But for now, enjoy your Sunday. If I were you, I'd probably stay inside. Don't go anywhere right now until they get rid of these proud boys, knuckleheads. 
I don't understand that about people. It's you know we're in the middle of a of a pandemic and they want to hoop and holler because their guy didn't want to, didn't make it. And there you have it. Disrupts yes, white male privilege at its at its worst. All right, you all have a blessed afternoon. Thank you, and join us again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.